This is Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast. I'm here with Andrew Fulham, who leads our HIV programs here at JSI. And you've been doing public health for a really long time, right? 27 years this week, this this month. So when did you learn that public health was a thing? College. I um, went to American University in the 80s, and I wanted. I thought I wanted to go to college to be a diplomat. So I was in the School of International Service, and in that first semester, you had to take non-Western European um, a class. And being 18 years old, I looked at what time classes were offered, and Latin America was 8.30 Monday morning, uh, um, Asian studies was maybe 8.30 on Tuesday, and African studies was at noon on Wednesday. It's like, bingo, found the right time of the day. And I had this professor who flicked me on to Africa, and particularly the challenges facing Africa today. And part of it was finance and education, but it was the health part of it that really captured my attention, both family planning and the systems pieces of it, immunization. That just grabbed the attention of an 18-year-old. So when was the first time you traveled to Africa? Um, with seats, probably 91, 92, I went to Togo. Um, Nancy Harris had great faith in this JSI model where you put young professionals out in the field and you give them an opportunity. So they sent me out for an entire summer to sit in for a regional administrator to sit in the regional office in Togo. So off I went at 24. I hadn't done Peace Corps. I had been in the headquarters office for maybe a year, year and a half at that point. And passport, luggage, Here's your scope of work. Good luck and go. Huh. That's great. What a learning experience. It was a fantastic learning experience. And, you know, I had college French, so, you know, I thought I was completely fluent and I could barely speak to a five-year-old. So it was a, it was a learning curve on many, many levels. So you took this class on African studies. Yeah. And did you change your major? No, it was just my focus within the School of International Service. So I got okay. out of diplomatic and Western Europe and went into development studies. So it was all about econ and finance and history and language. And so change, they changed everything that I did. So not living in Paris today, which was what, if you'd asked me at 18, that's where I would be at 50. But that, you know, it, it was a great, it was a great change, none I would have ever expected. So then what did you do when you got out of college? So when I first got out of college, um, I was also a political junkie. I lived in Washington, D.C. So I had had the chance as an undergrad to be an intern in Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's office. And so they had offered me a job at graduation. So I took that opportunity and did that for probably my first two years out of, the first two years out of college. So it was a great experience. It had nothing to do with international development. But at the end of the two years, it's like, okay, this is great. It's been fun to be a glorified secretary slash admin assistant, but I need to do something different. So um, I, this is in the old days, there were ads in the newspaper in the Washington Post, and I sent in my resume to, for a job at JSI and went through an interview process that went on what felt like forever and ever, but got hired. And so I pretty, you know, off and on, but I first started at JSI in January of 1990. And this has been home for the most part for my, the next 27 years. And what were you doing when you first started? I was a position then called, an, what was it? I think an administrative assistant. I think that's what it was. And it was a large, at the time, USAID's largest family planning program. So it was a SEATS program. It was a global service delivery support program. And I was the administrative assistant for the, um, the East Africa part of that. So backstopped the technical team in DC, but also a regional office in Harare, 
and um, probably six or seven country offices. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And um, now you lead our HIV programs, yep. HASI. So how did you get involved in the HIV work? Um, the HIV work came out of a mix of both interest in an emerging area in public health, but it's also a personal thing for me as well. As a gay man, initially as a gay man, working in public health, family planning was great. I get it. I get. I fully believe in the importance of it, but it's it's a couple steps removed from immediacy. And the HIV epidemic is real for me. It is the community I lived in in Washington was greatly impacted. You know, I went to college in '84 through '88. It's when the epidemic was ripping through the city and it, it so it affected my life so p public health and HIV was both professional and personal and you know if I was going to spend time in public health I would do something that meant meant something I could be passionate about mm -hmm. so that's probably when I came back it really started when I was in graduate school so maybe around 94 95 that I made the switch in the professional part of it to really focus on HIV okay so you so you were at JSI for a few years and then went to grad school? I was at JSI for a little over five years, okay. so both in the Washington office, and then I was overseas for a couple of years in Togo and Senegal in the regional office there. So that, that, summer, uh, that, summer, in, that summer assignment turned into a full-time gig. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, and then I came back and went to University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, um, and then I did a couple stints outside of JSI. I said FHI for a couple of years, working on clinical trials, all focused on HIV. And then for a while, I checked out of international public health and did only domestic stuff. So I was the director of the HIV surveillance program here in the state of Massachusetts. And then 17 years ago, came back to JSI to, and hired to help start what was then an idea of an HIV center at JSI in Wilhead. So backing up to doing domestic. So what made you want to focus on domestic? Or uh, I think you said get out of the international side. Well, part of it, there are a couple things. A gay man living in North Carolina wasn't the greatest place to be. But it was also, it was a very personal slash political decision to make. So I was working on clinical trials um, funded by NIH and administered by FHI. And we were, my portfolio was particularly around microbicides. So these were innovative ways that women could control their own um, protection in sexual activities and not have to negotiate condoms. And so these were tri uh, trials of nascent products. They hadn't been tested anywhere, so they're called phase one. So you find HIV uninfected women who are willing to try a product for a little while. Mm -hmm. So we were in Zimbabwe, and we had to find 25 women who didn't have an STI and didn't have HIV. We had to screen over 200 women to find th those 25 women. Wow. And in that, I would say probably three quarters of those women were HIV positive. And you've got to remember, this is pre-PEPFAR, this is pre-Global Fund, this is pre-treatment in Africa age. And NIH's response, so I brought up the issue. We had a compelling um, reason and justification and obligation to provide treatment for these women who had risked everything, and all we were offering them was here's the number, here's the address of the Palliative Care Association, good luck. And NIH's response was, that's not our responsibility. Standard wow. of care in Zimbabwe is palliative care. As, an, as a research entity, our job is to support standard of care. It is not to change standard of care. And so I'm an HIV-positive gay man taking my pills, thriving because of them, and I'm working in an environment where other people don't have that same access. And I, couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I checked out, and I looked for a domestic opportunity. And that's where the job at the Department of Public Health came up. And what were you doing with the DPH here? So DPH here, um, it, it was at a time when we, they were moving towards um, 
expanding the AIDS surveillance. So a HIV, AIDS was a reportable condition to the state. Mm -hmm. So anybody with it gets reported to the state, name, address, telephone number, social parts of your social security number, and it's, a, and it's a database of everybody living with AIDS. And CDC was pushing states to do the same thing for HIV. So I was brought in to manage that program as it expanded to include HIV, but Massachusetts being Massachusetts, um, we weren't gonna collect everybody's name. Part of it was illegal, you couldn't legally, but also we were very concerned about people's willingness to test if they knew not only they were gonna report it, but the state would have your name for the rest of your life. So we came up with a unique code, it's as good as a name, and then people reported by code. And so it was putting that system in place, looking at what the epidemic really looked like, so moving away from AIDS data, which was really old, to HIV data, which captured new infections, and then doing battle with CDC about the will their willingness to accept that data, because all they wanted was data based on, real, on full names. Hmm. And how did that go? Did not go well. <laughs> and at the end of the day, after I left and the next person came in, CDC gave states an option. Either you move to name-based reporting or part of your funding's in jeopardy. And so when you have to, when you put the, the two, you can stand on principle and say, we can do this, and we proved that you could do it with identifiers, but we're not gonna put at risk the prevention funding right. in order to stand on that principle. So the state moved towards that system. Mm -hmm. So you left the Department of Public Health and came back to JSI. So what yep. were you thinking about? You wanted to, you were missing the international? What I was missing the international, yeah, yeah, I was missing the international and I had done what I had come to the state to do and, and I had gotten part of well, so what I want to do, I think it's important if you're in public health on this side of it, the JSIs, the FHIs, the Chicago's, the EBCs of the world, there's something to be said for working on the government side of it. You know, we can all say that you know, the funder, fill in the blank, drives us crazy, but it's important to understand the pressures that they're on in a real way, and but also the impact that you can have, because in some ways I had more impact at the state in two years, or direct noticeable ways that I could see it than I see in what I do every day. So, but it was time to move on. Mm -hmm. um, and I had actually been offered a job out in Seattle to work with a different group, and I knew people here at JSI, and they said, well, we're talking about starting an HIV center, come talk to us before you make the move to Seattle. And so I came here, I met with Joel, I met Joel Lamstein, I met with Roy Kunches and Pat Fairchild and a whole bunch of people here, and it's, it felt like walking back in the door. And it was a great opportunity to come in and, do s and to create something out of nothing. So there were pockets of HIV programs, both a lot of work on the domestic side here at JSI, there were pockets of it in the international side, but sort of buried in other programs and initiatives, and World Ed was doing work. But it wasn't really, no one was coming together around HIV. So this was a real great opportunity to bring together all these folks and figure out how we could learn from what we're doing and have a greater impact, um, both here in the U.S. and in the countries where we do HIV work. And it's certainly grown here at JSI tremendously. It's grown tremendously. So when I came in, when, when, when we started the center, we had no... We had no international HIV programs other than those ones, that, like I said, buried in other initiatives and um, and a lot of H domestic work. The domestic work has ballooned, and it's everything from clinic-based work to national-scale programs like AIDS.gov. And on the international side, we have currently about seven different bilaterals, all primarily working in HIV. We have a global leadership program that we are managing in the second iteration of it. The supply chain uh, work under SCMS has ballooned, so it has become an important part of the work that we do here at JSI um, over the past 15 years or so. So stepping back from JSI, yeah. you've worked in HIV for a long time. Obviously, it's affected you personally. Mm -hmm. 
How have you, and, and working domestically and internationally, how have you seen essentially the trajectory of HIV, well, let's talk about the disease and how it's affected people. How have you seen right. that trajectory <coughs> over the years? Yeah, so, you know, uh, it's moved for, yeah, in the 80s when I first, you know, first recognized that I was gay and everything. There was no, there was no treatment option. It was you, you got tested every six months and you used condoms, and that, that condoms was not a negotiable item. Everybody used them. Fast forward, not fast forward, but not so fast forward. We have treatment widely available. We have a resource of, uh, we have an arsenal of resources available to us for both prevention, for treatment, for care and support, and a, and a global movement around HIV that's beyond just the U.S. So I think those have been tremendous changes in that. With that has come what I would call the medicalization of the response, so that you know prevention is largely focusing these days on male circumcision, taking PrEP, which is taking some of the drugs that are also used for HIV treatment, use them as prevention. So it's a lot of clinical aspects and then, and then treatment. Treat everybody who is HIV infected and living with HIV. That swings back, back and forth from time, over time, but right now it's about treat everybody. So it's a very medical model. And what's getting missed here at, at, at times is what are all the underpinnings that either make it easier or harder for people to gain access to services, remain and adapt behaviors that keep them at, um, lower the risks of acquiring HIV or living with HIV positively. And so a lot of that is disappearing as we move headlong into trying to give, get these medical and biomedical interventions out to folks. Mm -hmm. Um, when President Bush was in office, mm -hmm. he launched PEPFAR. Yep. I think people were pretty skeptical skeptical about that when it first uh, was announced. What do you think about PEPFAR, or what did, what did you think at the time, and what do you think now? I've always been a cheerleader, and obviously because I'm because I'm from the field, it we gave focus to. A, a, a disease, a, a public health crisis, and also reframe some of the conversation. It was a, it was a global security issue. It was, it was an equity accent issue. It was an equality issue, and it put resources in there. The public health part of me has always been concerned that, in the typical way that U.S. government does stuff, it's often robbing Peter to pay Paul. So great, we're going to put lots of money into HIV, but does that mean family planning isn't equally funded? Is maternal and child health not getting equally funded? So rarely is it the creation of new money to, uh, to, to put in place. Mm -hmm. But it, it galvanized resources. It, over time, has um, worked with countries at a country level, so these country operating plans. It is engaged in the conversation of trying to both meet governments in countries where they are, but helping to move them ahead and maybe push the envelope a little bit. Um, so in. And when it works in concert with things like the Global Fund and other initiatives and activities, great. But when it sort of goes off and marches on its own, then it becomes complicating not only in a global arena, but in a country. Um, and we still struggle with how the different parts of PEPFAR, USAID versus CDC versus Department of Labor versus HRSA, how do they all work together and play well in the same sandbox? Not easily figured out. So on the whole, you think it's been a good thing? Absolutely. And on a whole, and if you go talk to people who have been the end recipients of this, there are millions of people alive today because they've had access to HIV treatment, and that's largely the, the efforts of PEPFAR. They would not be with us here today. I don't go to countries anymore where 
one of the co biggest cottage industries is building making coffins. I don't we don't have to come up with bereavement leaves and funeral leave policies in Zambia and Zimbabwe and South Africa and Uganda anymore. It has fundamentally changed the trajectory in a number of these countries. So for all the, the problems with it and the vertical structure and the nature of it and everything else, it has fundamentally given people life. Mm. And it's had an important role in reducing the number of children born exposed to uh, living with HIV. Mm -hmm. You know, in South Africa, in South Africa, the government has done much of it on their own, but we're talking about having dropped in places like Johannesburg, the mother-to-child transmission rate is down to 2 or 3%, down from 24%. Right. Those are mi massive. That massive. That could not have been done without a harness to program, I don't think, focused solely on HIV. But there were downsides to PEPFAR too, yeah. right? What were, what were the negatives, do you think? The, the, this part of it was the, verti the verticalization of, you know, it's just PEPFAR, and it initially it was an emergency response. And how do you how do you get in? And we're going to worry only about HIV and HIV service delivery, at times at the um, detriment of primary health care, universal health coverage, some level MNCH, some point level HIV. Um, so th that was definitely that has been a downside of it. I think it's gotten better. So you know, we have a program in Zambia now that is integrated HIV maternal and child health and family planning, and we work with family planning to bring women into services and offer them same-day HIV testing, that if they're positive, they can get their antiretrovirals all in the same day at the same clinic. So, But you can't do it. If it was just an HIV program, just offering HIV testing, it wouldn't get people in. And so it it, it's moved towards this holistic response and approach to how do you work with um, people, particularly women, in getting them into services. One thing that comes to mind is the old ABC, and the focus on C was a little bit of a downer yeah. too at times. But yeah, uh, definitely the C. I would say PEPFAR is now good on uh, also key populations, mm -hmm. but in the early days, a lot of it was that there aren't men who have sex with men in most of the countries that we work in. That was the mantra. There aren't injecting drug users or people who use drugs. There are not transgender people, and so it's it, it's caught up and it's now become a leader in that area. But there was a lot of time where a lot of those populations were not identified as being priorities. But that, that has changed significantly in the past, I would say, three to four years. So you, you talked earlier about the medicalization these days. And it does seem like, thinking about ABC or whatever, every few years there's sort of a new trend or new yep. focus. 90-90-90, no new infections, the yeah. medicalization. How do you think that has sort of impacted the approach to dealing with HIV? Um, both domestically and internationally, it's put clinics at sort of the center of where everybody it goes to to think about how to provide HIV services. So the clinic, you know, it's either the community health center here in the U.S. or it is the, the clinic or the hospital in some place. And that because and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, for people living with HIV who have to get on drug, that's a great thing. But for people who are long-term survivors, do you need, really need to come to clinic every three months or, or every month to pick up your meds. And the field is moving towards how to decentralize, how to move that out, and places like MSF are looking at community distribution of drugs and how to make that simpler, but it's been a slower process. But yeah, I, I'm never gonna argue that the medicalization is an important part, particularly if you're living with HIV. We can talk about community engagement and we can talk about um, you know, addressing barriers and structures that make people um, harder to get services. But if there isn't ARVs at the end of the day and a doctor or a nurse who knows how to prescribe them at the other end, then 
we, we have missed something. So it's finding the right balance and the right balance for people where they are in, in, at this stage of the infection. So if you're not living with HIV and you're but at risk, what's the right place to get services? If you're newly infected, what do you need to do? If you've been on treatment for five years, how does this system, and when I say system, I mean the facility, the community, everything work together to provide support for people. And do you do you, so? Do you see that happening yeah, now? Yeah, I definitely see that. Now? And again, that's a place where PEPFAR is pushing. Of, you know, is what they call differential models. What what do you need for somebody who's newly infected? What do you need for somebody who's just finished the first year? What do you need for a pregnant woman? What do you need for somebody who's inactive? Some person who's actively injecting. What do you need for somebody who's been on drugs for five years? And so, looking at those different models based on where you are in sort of your lifetime of living with HIV and how do you adjust the system in order to meet your needs so that we can ensure that an individual's health is okay and also that um, you're minimizing the viral load in the community. So on the whole, do you feel like we're on the right or, or where the, fun the, the, the people who are giving the funding, that they're on the right track now? And looking at key populations and looking at the differential. Yeah, and, and, uh, and also in, in, in that, also in recognizing both here in the U.S. and internationally that a country is not uniformly at, uh, impacted by HIV. So in the U.S., it's really the South, you know, sort of from Virginia to Florida and Florida over to Texas represents a mi the, the significant part of the epidemic and then add to it sort of 12 cities in the country. And that represents over 50% of the infection. So it's, you're at a much less risk in Wyoming if you, than if you're in Texas. And the funding has been reallocated to represent that reality. And the same thing on the PEPFAR side, that increasingly the PEPFAR does not blanket the entire country and we fund everything in the entire country. The, the focus is on where are the most infections, where are the greatest number of people living with HIV. That's where PEPFAR will put resources and it's up to the country to often figure out how do you fill in the gaps of places that are definitely impacted by HIV but are not sort of the driving parts of the epidemic. Hmm. Are there things that have been done here in the U.S. that you think have been very effective here that should have been implemented internationally or looked at for international and, and vice versa? Are there things in different places that we should share. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things you've definitely seen in the last probably in the this last administration, this last 4 years of the Obama administration is a much closer discussion of where those overlap because there's much greater discussion between the PEPFAR folks and Office of Global AIDS coordinator and the National HIV strategy here in the US. And that's part of why we at JSI World Ed have come together because we're one of the few organizations out there that work both domestically and internationally. And how do we learn from both of those. I think there are areas areas that come to mind where I often think that folks in, the f in say, Africa, Asia, and our international partners are way ahead of some of the thinking that we do are issues around gender-based violence and addressing the issues of stigma. I think they're much, it's much more recognized and important, and, and, and there's much more sort of innovation out, out in, the, in that field and it doesn't move it hasn't moved so much to the on the domestic side and it hasn't been reapplied here issues and then i think places where both 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 sides are sort of trying to struggle and try to figure out are things like prep how do you roll out this pre-exposure prophylaxis to the right people at the right time so that it's useful i think there there's a place where it's actually in many ways being rolled out somewhat simultaneously much more simultaneously than services have in the past and there's great opportunity to learn from 
um, both sides of the equation on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other big thing for me is engaging men. I don't think, uh, I think in the U.S., uh, the epidemic's largely among men who have sex with men. Probably over 70% of the infection are people living with HIV or men who have sex with men. So there's been strategies about how to get men into health services because primary health care does not usually cater particularly to young men. So how do you mm-hmm. engage them in services? It's the same challenge we face in, in, in many of the countries that we're working in, say, Africa, Africa and India and Asia. There's no reason for young men or young men of reproductive age to engage with the public health system. And so how do you get them to come into services? How do you get them to come in and how do you engage them in some, in some way, meaningful way? You know, BMMC has helped with that voluntary male circumcision, but it's, it, they're still lagging um, the engagement of men on, on, in the international side. And so how do we so, con- so countries that have basically outlawed, if you will, gay men or right. gay behavior or homosexuality. That, that's one of the challenges. That. But also, you know, think a lot of, you know, many of the countries in the initial days and still to this day, day and age, many of the HIV services were embedded in um, MNCH services. Where the, the, the easy target was pregnant women. So mm-hmm. let's put the services in, capture women during pregnancy, test them, get their kids in, and then build out to the family. But imagine if you're a man living in Harare. HIV services are largely an MNCH clinic where men don't typically come for general MNCH services. So the concern for many men is going to be if I walk into the clinic, people are going to know that I'm HIV positive or assume I'm positive. And the services are really gathered around MNCH and don't know how to talk to men about what they're doing, about well, their the same thing health that family planning, family, family planning clinics have looked at yeah. all these years around serving adolescents. Right. There's no reason for an adolescent to come to a clinic. Right, same thing. Or, or and even, even the family planning side, why would a young man come into right. a, a yeah. tough enough for a 16-year-old girl to come in for family right. planning if she wants her male partner to come with them right. or the male partner wants to come in to get condoms, even yeah. harder. Yeah. But also, you know, you know, not in every, but you know, men often work. They work either in the formal sector or the informal sector. If clinic hours are only between nine and one, Monday through Friday. If you've got a job, you can't come to services. So it, it, it's those some of those challenges. And then we scratch our head. Well, why don't men come? Male engagement. Male engagement and talking to it. And, and I think some innovations in the general public health field. This idea of human-centered design build services that address and respond to the needs of people and not define them through, say, the HIV virus or the ven- the, that venue or that, 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 that lens and think more broadly of what do they need for health issues. And HIV is part of that, but it's not all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's um, step back <coughs> for a minute. Yep. And um, UNAIDS yep. was launched in 96, yep. 15 years after the first cases were reported. How do you think they've contributed? Do you think they've contributed or not to addressing the epidemic? I do. Yeah, I, I think the greatest place that UNAIDS makes a contribution is around things like 90-90-90. They come up with this. They they come up and galvanize people around a slogan and an aspirational place that we want to be, and then it moves everybody else to that. And they're aspirational, I, and I'm fine with aspirational goals. Not every goal needs to be met, but you have to put it out there. And people like Michelle Cedebay have been excellent at putting, to gathering people together to think about what that, that aspirational vision is and then move towards it and then let the PEPFARS and the, uh, and the, the, the GAVI, the, not GAVI, the Global Fund and the country programs move towards those. And one of the things that I have found really interesting in, the ni- in this rollout of the 90-90-90 is that it's actually finally also 
being picked up here in the U.S. So for many years, people here in the U.S., UN AIDS is, you know, for those kinds of countries, quote unquote. But now you hear people talk about it and you've got these getting to zero campaigns in San Francisco and New York and in here in Massachusetts. It's built around achieving those 90, 90, 90 goals. And so I think they've been really great at that, but they also face the same challenges that many UN agencies face in that you're a representative body of 186, 87 countries with widely disparate understandings or beliefs around both HIV, the communities impacted. And so it becomes, if you think working in the PEPFAR environment is hard, imagine that in the UN system and how do you strike a balance and be a leader, but also not leave behind people that you need at the table, at least if no other reason to be quiet and by, by presence being okay with it and not being um, fighting you on the issues and directions that you want to go in, to go towards. Um, speaking of Michelle, are there folks who have worked in the HIV or actually any any field around public health who yeah. you think have been um, really game changers in in the work being done? Who, frankly, you would follow or or you know champion? You would go where they're going and do what they're doing. Who do you admire working in this field? It's a long list, so yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to start from the bottom up and then come up. There are people, so we have a, a, a project director in Zambia, Muka Chikuba, Zambian woman doctor who leads this huge $65 million project that's looking at new and innovative ways to get services out to people in non-traditional ways and outside of necessarily the government sector and building capacity. She is not only one of the smartest minds I know about how to do things differently and, you know, for example, how to engage the chiefs, which is a recognized legal structure in Zambia, how do you engage them in that response and then how do you galvanize your staff to do that and then how do you tell the story and the narrative and how do you change what you're doing based on as things change. Her ability to do that and do it both with humor but intelligence, I follow her anywhere and anytime. Um, there are public health leaders. Um, my my old boss, he's not with us anymore. But people like Ward Cates. And for folks who don't know Ward, he is for me a public health champion. He he started off his career focusing on the the right of women to have access to abortion in the United States and what was the impact of Roe v. Wade and making abortion safe and using surveillance and data to tell that story and fought the battle until the Reagan people forced him out of his position. And he moved on and he took on HIV and he took on state committed to public health and family planning, always and, and, and intensely curious about everything, but always humble. Ward knew, Ward shortened everybody's name to a single syllable, but he walked the halls. So who were you? What were you? I was just A. <laughs> yeah. Often, often the first initial of your name, but something you know, it could be something shorter, but always a single syllable. He walked the halls of FHI every day for all three floors, and he stopped and chatted, and he stopped, you know, not everybody the same day, but you could count on him wandering around every day, and he knew a little bit of what was going on everywhere, and could be, and be, and he was always a cheerleader. There was nothing that could not be done, always positive, and always a, a tremendous advocate for the next generation of public health folks. How do you give them voice? How do you give them opportunity? And how do you move them forward? Um, yeah, and with that, I, the same group as Joel Lampstein, who I've had 
it's been a pleasure of working with for for the past off and on for the past 27 years the same some of the same characteristics but it's the people the people make the organization you can have all the lofty words in the world that you want around a mission statement and glossy thing uh, glossy materials but it is the people and the thing i've always that i look to and respect and admire around Joel is that you put power and authority at the, at the furthest reaches of the organization. So for our programs here at JSI, if you run a program in Pakistan or in Denver or somewhere else, you have authority to run that program. There's not a hierarchy that you have to come back to get blessings. Joel also invests in the future, look to the future, how do you do, do that future, but he also gets that it's a business. You can have all the good intentions in the world, but you got to have the money to pay the rent, to pay people at the end of the month. And it is, it, there is that part of it as well. You've got to mix mission and business. On the, on the global front, people like Jonathan Mann in the early days, he took this battle on when no one else wanted to. People like Jim Curran also, yeah, a lot of that then comes from me from the HIV and the early days. People like Randy Schultz who wrote and the band played on. Without that history, so much of it would have been lost. Cleed Jones and the, and, and the, and the quilt. Um, my first HIV doc who told me that I was going to be okay, that I was going to be okay. Um, and then there are people, current people, Debbie Burks, you know, Pepfar has all of its challenges and OGAC has all of its challenges, but I've never met somebody who is as tireless about this issue and positive about it. And how do we use data to get the right programs to the right people at the right time? Um, it, it is truly it, the, the amount of work that, and the accomplishment that has been done in the last couple of years, and we can talk about the too much focus on numbers or this or that or the other thing, but that ability to take change and move people towards change that's going to be, in the end, better for everybody. Mark Dybul, same category. And then, I know it's not public health people, but it is my social support network, my friends outside of work who get me, who you know, are friends, and you know, I'm in and out of here all the time. They're here, they check in, they're part of it. My family here at JSI, so I've known some of these people more than half my life. We just had a meeting here at JSI, and I got to spend time with people like Carolyn Hart, who I've known for 27 years, and who's been a friend and a champion, but most importantly, a friend for, these year, for all these years. People like you, Penelope, and others. They, they are, yeah, I can't, you can't do this work unless you've got a group of people, and then it is my family family. I, you've, we've been through this before, and I've told this story before. I can't, I am who I am, and I do what I do because I've had parents and a mother who has done nothing but supported me and stood behind me and let me do what I need to do and want to do and never questioned and always been there. And two brothers who are my biggest champions and my biggest cheerleaders, but also who can call me on my nonsense and have no problems about it and put me back as if we were still 14 years old. So it's all of them together that are both my my idols, the people I look to for guidance and look for to um, continue to figure out what I want to do. What would you say, looking back from here, yep. what are you most proud of that you've done? Um, three things quickly come to mind. Um, here at JSI, in the early days when we first started the HIV Center, there was not, there, again, no PEPFAR, no global fund. Access to drugs, limited non-existence, and we had 
we had people dying on our staff, and we had family members. You know, we had people spending a lot of time going to funerals and burying and taking on orphans. And in response to basically a request or demand from our one of our field offices, we came up with an HIV/AIDS workplace policy at JSI that guaranteed that you could not be tested for, uh, tested as a condition of employment. That we would ensure that you had access to ARVs, even though regardless of where you lived. That we would set up systems and uh, vacation pools and banks and other stuff so that you could have funeral benefits and funeral uh, and meet and go to funerals. And we would provide resources for orphans and vulnerable children. JSI, as far as I know at that time, was way ahead of everybody else. And we, what we were ensuring is that whether you lived in Bangladesh or in Boston or in Botswana, you got the same access to the same care and the same supports. And that was it, and it was a bottom-led initiative, but it had the complete support of senior management. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, I got the opportunity to work in Cambodia while I was in grad school and worked with local NGOs there to help set up community distribution networks and train community health workers on distribution of nets, condoms, and uh, resupply of oral contraceptives. That pro those programs are still running. That we're talking about some work that was done in 1994. Those programs still run on their own. Don't have donor support. They have the NGOs have figured out how to move, work those and manage those and move them forward. And then the third thing I put on that list is in collaboration with Columbia University, we were part of the MTCT Plus initiative, which was really again pre PEPFAR. I'm just going to do a fourth one. Um, that got treatment out to people and showed that, you know, after the Andrew Nassim was this comment that, you know, people in Africa don't know how to tell time, they can't do ARVs, we can't, they can do it. And the systems are in place, the communities are in place, the people can do it and it can have impact and you can go to scale. So at a time before anybody else was doing it. So, but whatever happened to that? Because I remember when that first came out and we yeah. were like, okay, what happens when this project ends and suddenly there's no money for all these people? But, it, but, but, it's, been but it's been rolled up into the, the PEPFAR programs okay. and the Global Fund programs and the, those sites that were really demonstration sites are now part of national networks. And in many cases, they're, national, they're training centers. They are centers of excellence within country programs because they started these initiatives early on. And then the last thing that I'm most proud of is here in Massachusetts when, we, when I was with the surveillance program is being able to take that HIV data and tell a different story and particularly shining a light on that there was a tremendous epidemic in non-U.S. born populations here in Massachusetts. Up until that point, we'd collect everything by race. So you were white, you were black, you were Asian, or you were Latino. There was no differentiation country in there. So we separated whether you're born here or not. And one of the big things that came out is there was a large and significant epidemic around heterosexual um, black women not born in the United States. But what that was masking was an epidemic among black women born in the United States who were also um, people who injected drugs. But because all we looked at was black women and lumped everybody together, we put services into heterosexual transmission but didn't focus on non-U.S. born populations. So we were able to then reallocate resources to target women in this group, so from Haiti and from Uganda and from other countries, and the services that they needed and that took into consideration concerns about immigration and other stuff. And we were able to dedicate and put some money and resources into um, programs that focus on women, women who are active, in, um, active users and active injectors because they had been buried in this and it wasn't seen as a real population, that there was really 
in places like Fall River and down into the south southern part of the state, there was really a large epidemic of women who were actively actively um, using injecting drugs and getting becoming infected because of it. So you were able to do something and make a change and do it and see that change. So those are, those are four things that come to mind when I think about that. And where do you see HIV going from here? Where we yeah, are we, we are at a tipping point. Um, as I said earlier, and I'm not the only one who says this, we have, minus a vaccine, we have everything that we need to significantly, we have all the, the, the tools we need. We have the drugs, we have the test kits, we have everything that we need to really address HIV. But what we need is both the financial resources, but also the novel and innovative thinking of getting to those harder to reach people. We've gotten all the easy people. We've gotten the people who are going to be who are willing and can come into services for whatever reason, but how do you reach those folks that have not been drawn in by this first wave? Because they're going to be the harder to reach folks, and the tool and the approaches that we have are going to need to change in order to reach those harder to reach populations. But a lot of it's going to depend on the new administration, internationally and domestically, the domestic portfolio. And in the domestic, it also comes down to states. We live here in Massachusetts, where HIV is well funded and a lot of as an important public health issue. Um, go to some other states, particularly in the South, it isn't. And so what we're going to end up with, unless something changes, is a wildly different, even if you're living with HIV, a wildly different potentially life expectancy and quality of life depending on where you live. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. Really it's been my pleasure. It. Love hearing, I don't know, some of those details I didn't know before. That's great. Love and thanks for asking me. It's great to share them. Thank you for listening to Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast.